it's November, which means it's Native American Heritage Month. What would happen if I asked you to name one Native woman? I'll wait. Was your answer Pocahontas? It's no surprise that most people automatically think of Pocahontas when they think of Native women. People our age grew up on Pocahontas, the brave story of a Native woman and white man who defeat prejudice through love. But the story isn't even accurate. Most people would say that's okay since it's fiction. But what does the film tell us about our perceptions of Native people? And you've been so many places, I guess it must be so. But still I cannot see. If the savage one Native women feature as literal flora and fauna. Do you remember Grandmother Willow? She was a tree, and Pocahontas' ability to talk to animals was a highlight of the film. Even in Snow White and Cinderella, where animals feature heavily, there's a distinction drawn between the mice who make Cinderella's dress or even the birds who help Snow White clean. They can't communicate with the princesses like Pocahontas can with her raccoon Miko. In this episode, we talk about indigenous women, women living today, and the issues they face. Some of these topics are hard to talk about or listen to. Be aware that there's discussion of medical abuse, violence against women, and rape in this episode. Today, your hosts Elizabeth, Anna, and Tia reconvene Hash It Out to discuss Pocahontas and other fictions. women face unique challenges based on the intersection of anti-Native racism and sexism. I spoke to Wesley Stevens, the president of the Native American Student Alliance, about some of the specific issues facing Native American women today. My name is Wesley Stevens. My pronouns are she or they. I think there's a lot of, um, from what I've seen, there's a lot of violence towards women that um, exists as um, both institutionalized and personal violence. So Native women are more likely to be educated, like have higher education than Mm -hmm. Native men on average. There's still an educational gap across the... And part of that is because of the legacy of um, Indian boarding schools and the education that um, is afforded to Native people on the Mm -hmm. res. Um, But you know, the other part of that is just that, like, you know, one of my friends, um, she's Lumbee, so, um, for those who don't know, Lumbee is a, a state-recognized tribe in North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, and, um, one of the issues that she's faced a lot is that, um, she's just, people treat her as stupider mm-hmm. than, you know, um, than her, her counterparts, because she's Native American. Um, and she's not stupid. She's mm-hmm. going to UCLA for grad school, so, like, I don't think you can be stupid and do that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and and this happens to, to Native women the world over. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, and in a sense, this happens to most women. Mm-hmm. They're treated as stupider, but it's a, it's a much more concentrated strain of that, um, that wrongdoing. Yeah. Um, and, um, part of it in, I think, goes back to those racist tropes and assumptions that we've built around Native American people. Um, you know, it's like very much a noble savage type of thing. You're still a savage. Exactly. Even, even when it's coded with good things. Yeah. It's still a racist ideology that's supporting that 
idea. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, I mean, sexual violence is hard to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, For any of us, you know, I mean, it's like, oh, we're all survivors. Let's talk about sexual violence. Right. It's going to be rough. But, um... Native women face the highest rates of sexual violence of any racial group. One in three Native women report being raped, but 84% of Native American and Alaska Native women have experienced some form of violence in their life, according to the Department of Justice. Native women in the U.S. face some of the highest levels of violence of any group. According to the Justice Department, one in three Native women has been raped, and three out of five will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Making this even more of an issue is the push and pull between tribal sovereignty, judicial courts, and jurisdiction. Although Native tribes have their own court systems, those courts can only prosecute Native Americans. And according to the Department of Justice, 90% of perpetrators of violence against Indigenous women are non-Native. That bounces jurisdiction to the state and federal courts, who rarely even have the time, money, or motivation to pursue these cases. We need a full national inquiry into the missing and murdered Aboriginal women. Native women often face um, a lot of um, tokenization and sexualization. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes back to that Indian princess idea yeah. a lot. Um, and the issue of the um, kind of the, you know, the land of lakes girl. The, yeah. the, the beautiful native who's, you know, on her knees ready to give you her bounty and the bounty of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of ties back to the idea of Native women and um, Turtle Island as um, being treated in many of the same ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sexual violence and physical violence that women face are, um, you know, very similar to the physical violence that Turtle Island faces. In 2016, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, established a federally funded inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, or MMIW. By 2018, tribes were asking for the task force to be scrapped and started over due to constant personnel changes and lack of results. Trudeau declined to restart the project, but says the work is continuing. Every day we have between 120 to 150 missing person cases. How many of the cases would be Indigenous women? I would say at least uh, 95% of the cases. Is it too little too late, though? Currently, the estimates say there are between 1,000 and 4,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada alone. The Highway of Tears, a stretch of road bordering 23 First Nation communities, is known for being a hotspot of abduction and murder of Indigenous women. Officially, the number of women connected to this highway is 18, but the investigation defined parameters for victims, including high-risk lifestyles or hitchhiking. Tribal groups estimate more than 40 women have been connected to this highway when disregarding the high-risk lifestyle requirement. Again, we can talk about how, um, going back to the prosecutorial issues earlier, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of protection for Indigenous women. Mm there the reservations and the tribal governments don't have a lot of power comparatively to what can be done in um, um, 
a light court. Mm-hmm. Um, so if um, a non-native hurts a native person yeah. sexually, whether it's a man or a woman, the court wants to bring them in for questioning, to yeah. charge them with assault, any of that. Um, their jurisdiction runs really short, really quick. Yeah. They can't... I've heard of cases where they can't call in, like, if he's often a white part of the state, they can't call him in. Yeah. You know, they can't, they can't bring him in. Law enforcement doesn't really have to uh, cooperate in that space. Exactly. That. So from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm. tribal governments have prosecutorial jurisdiction over the reservation, but only the people who live on the reservation and are enrolled in the tribe are under that jurisdiction. Correct. So if a white man comes in and victimizes a native woman mm. and leaves, they can then give that case to the state, but in most cases the state isn't following through. From an urban standpoint, um, there is still the threat of sexual violence, and occasionally that is handled by, you know, state or federal courts. Yeah. You see the same issues that you see in any space around sexual violence, that, you know, rape kits go untested, that yeah. um, women are, you know, told that, uh, they did something wrong. So all of the same issues that any other woman would face, these native women face in urban spaces as well. Mm -hmm. um, but then you add on the uh, racist um, assumptions that occur around native women. Yeah. It just gets that much worse. It's impossible to know how many indigenous women are missing or murdered. There's no way to track the data right now. But the conservative estimate is 1,000. And add to that the number of sexual assaults. According to RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, there are 5,900 sexual assaults against Native women every year. Indigenous women are twice more likely to be assaulted than any other woman. Indigenous women face essentially every issue that um, a white woman would face mm -hmm. um, or a woman in a more dominant position of uh, power. But... Um, Indigenous women also face um, a very particular style of uh, sexual violence. Mm -hmm. um, they also face uh, lack of access to health care, to education, many lacks of access to uh, um, justice uh, mm -hmm. in, in multiple fashions, whether that's transformative justice or that's, you know, standard American criminal justice. Yeah. So... Yeah, so you're saying there are more issues beyond just actual justice. Even what we have to create justice in our system usually fails Native women. Yes, generally, okay. yes. And there are many um, many things that um, Indigenous women and Indigenous men are working on to change that, but mm -hmm. um, it, it's an ongoing process. But as we all know, violence against women isn't just perpetrated by individuals, but on a larger systemic scale as well. In indigenous women's case, one of the most notable examples beyond attempted genocide, of course, would be forced sterilization. 
While all of their stories are unique, they also bear striking similarities. All of them were in vulnerable positions, indigenous, and all say they were sterilized against their will. Forced sterilization was a widespread practice among the Indian Health Services, or IHS, and in Canada until as late as 1975. Forced sterilization comes in different forms, but by and large, the practice was routinely employed against women who were giving birth at IHS facilities. Ranging from hysterectomies to tubal ligations, the practice was widespread and involved sterilization without consent from the women. Up through the 70s and even into the 80s in certain parts of America, indigenous women were forcibly sterilized. Mm -hmm. So um, they would go into the dentist or mm -hmm. they'd go to their OBGYN or they'd go in, you know, just to get a checkup and they would be recommended a surgery because something was wrong down there. You know, sometimes women were told they had tumors. They did yeah. not. Um They'd go, you know, they'd, um, you know, they'd take nitrous at the dentist to get a, a tooth ripped out. Yeah. And then by the time they come out of that, there's scars and there's stitches on their, you know, their lower abdomen because yeah. their uterus had been taken out or their tubes had been ligated. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know until recently about this, um, but it does not surprise me is that um, women, Native women who were recognized as full blood were especially targeted um which makes sense when you remember what the whole blood quantum idea is which is to essentially eventually kill off the native populations yeah. um so this occurred within our parents lifetimes mm -hmm. um this actually occurred within my brother's lifetime he would yeah. have been a baby but like like when we think about that you know like it's not that far removed from today. It's really not. Um, you know, my parents were going to college. It was occurring to Native women their age or and younger. Mm -hmm. This was occurring to girls. It came out of this very, we know better, help the poor Indians eugenicist yeah. space. And I think it's very important for people to understand that. A lot of the folks who were involved in this thought they were doing a good thing. Yeah. Because they basically saw these Native women as less human without realizing it, and saw them as something closer to cattle or um, an out-of-control animal population, like deer, and said, we have to enact some sort of approach to uh, take care of this population problem. We are not an out-of-control animal, right? Like, no human is... No human is, a, a, like, an invasive species, right? Yes. Um, and especially not on the land that they come from. So when we talk about this, it, it, it's not only a medical intervention, but it's, it's, it, it is, again, another form of sexual violence. It is. Because these women, not only do they not have the choice of whether they want to have children now, um, but their bodies were torn apart mm -hmm. usually by white men yeah um and they had no choice in the matter they they didn't even get to say no mm -hmm. um and so that that is something that um when we talk about like listening to a native woman's story like most of us are gonna hear that and say that can't be right how could something 
that terrible, something that sounds like it came out of Nazi Germany, yeah. occur in America and occur so recently. But it did. And they were paid. And yeah, and they were paid by the government. Yeah. Yeah, they were paid, I think it was, was it federal grants? Yeah. Yeah, federal grants. And they were paid literally, like, they, the language used, and I hate using this language so much, but the language they used was by the head. Which essentially goes back to the um, issue of redskin. Exactly. Which, you know, being the scalp of an indigenous person. Um, and when we talk about redskin, we forget a lot of times that um, it was actually so, you know, the price has changed, mm-hmm. but the one that's always stuck with me, the so the, the ratio was always higher, the price was always higher for a native or a native woman or a native child mm-hmm. than it was for a native man. And so the language that always stuck with me was when it was 10 cents for an Indian brave, 25 cents for, um, I'm not going to say the S word, but basically a native woman or their child. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, you know, we think about that and then we look at it in this context and it really is genocide. In an attempt to control the native American population, over 3000 native women were verifiably sterilized by the IHS without their consent. But the number may be much higher, with estimates ranging as high as 25% of the female population being sterilized without their consent. They were frequently told they had to have whatever procedure the doctor chose, while others weren't informed about the procedure at all. Many women went in for routine dental care and left with no knowledge of their sterilization. Others even were told it was reversible. The common theme is that they were lied to, intentionally misled, or just not told at all what had been done to their bodies and never gave informed consent for the procedure. All three women have dealt with the trauma of being sterilized against their will in their own way. I trust nobody, absolutely nobody. If I can't trust a doctor or, you know, people in these kind of positions, I can't trust anybody. I just, it's put me in a shell. Like, I don't don't want to make new friends. I don't want to meet new people. I don't even want to leave my house. Today, there are isolated cases of forced sterilization in American prisons, but the trend has also reversed. In another attempt to control Native women, they are regularly forced to go without access to reproductive health care. The Hyde Amendment bars federal funds from being used for abortion services, which prevents Native women on reservations from accessing abortions at IHS facilities. This means they have to travel off the reservation, which means they can't access abortions at all. And those who can access abortions are forced to spend their time in mandatory waiting periods or face severely restrictive laws around when, how, and where they can access abortions. But Native women are actually overrepresented in abortion statistics. This means they're having more unwanted pregnancies compared to their white counterparts. This doesn't mean that Native women are less concerned with contraception. Native American women are actually less likely to have access to contraception due to IHS violating their own policies around abortion, contraception, and the morning after pill. Plus, Native women experience poverty at far higher rates than their white counterparts, so just whether they're able to pay for contraception is an extra barrier. So what are you being asked to do? Listen to Indigenous women, center their words and your discussions, and let them speak for themselves. Don't presume to speak for them. Understand that a lot of what you grew up knowing about Natives is just wrong. From Dreamcatchers to Pocahontas, there are a lot of lies we were told about Indigenous women. 
and we have to start the process of unlearning these lies by listening to them. Well, there are a lot of ways that allies can support Indigenous women. The first is to listen to um, Indigenous women and make sure that uh, their voices are heard. Mm -hmm. And so when you're listening to someone from a different standpoint, ask questions, certainly, but don't, if something sounds off to you, Mm -hmm. don't immediately think that that makes them wrong because it might sound off to you because you don't know the whole story. 